Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today, I'm speaking with Darren Mass. After starting, scaling, and exiting mass communications, Darren has gone on to more personal endeavors. His podcast called I Took a Hike features meaningful and deep conversations with the world's leading entrepreneurs, innovators, and thought leaders, all which happen over the course of many hours out in nature. In this one, we dive into Darren's experience as a founder, lessons learned from both family and business, Darren's personal experience with ADHD, depression, and what he calls very dark years, LinkedIn as the platform for building one's personal brand, and much, much more. This was a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And with that, let's get to it. Here is Darren Mass. So any cool hikes lately? Yeah, yeah, actually, I many. I actually am surprised myself. I did not think that guests would want to hike during the cold in the winter, but they do. And it's kind of interesting. So last week we hiked around 30 degrees in Central Park with the last and final CEO of Blockbuster, Jim Keyes. And we had a really awesome conversation. The episode, we finally put to rest the debate over Netflix. Netflix did not put Blockbuster out of business. And Blockbuster did not miss on potentially acquiring Netflix. So you have to tune into the episode to hear the real story. But the armchair quarterbacking, the hindsight reflections, timelines don't line up with dates and technology. Netflix had nothing to do with Blockbuster. That's a good one. I'm flying out to San Francisco next week to hike with the CEO of All Trails. That's going to be an awesome one. We're going to get a really great San Francisco hike in. So I'm really inspired by that. And then I have a few up and coming ones in other states throughout the country, as well as around New Jersey. Let's catch people up on the podcast. How did it start? What is it about? And who are some of the folks that appear on your show? So the podcast is called I Took a Hike. I'd started out of a massive depression. Uh, I was COVID exacerbated by all the other world nonsense and negatives that are going on, the helplessness feeling. I had exited a company successfully to a Fortune 500 a couple of years prior. So living off of that, not feeling relevance or purpose. And my brother took me on a hike and I loved the hike. The very first hike was at Breakneck Ridge in New York. And it's exactly how it sounds. There was challenge there. It was me out in nature with my brother, a great conversation. And the bug stuck with me. Next hike, I went out with my buddy, Ben, who also sold a company. We were talking about that. And I turned to him during one of the ascents and I said, you know, Ben, I am so depressed. I feel like I'm not important. I'm not relevant anymore. I have no purpose. And he turned to me and he said, Darren, man, you have purpose. Why do you keep tying purpose to work? You're a good father. You're hiking right now. You've done these great accomplishments. What's wrong with you? Stop thinking that way. 
And once we were done with that hike, I got back to my Jeep and I like the cliche entrepreneurial spark popped into my head. I took a hike. People needed to hear that conversation. How many hikes have you done since then? So I have personally done over 50 hikes since then. That was a year ago or a little less than a year ago, but I've recorded 38. Wow. In the next few weeks, I'll have 42 recorded. So it keeps growing. My initial goal is to do 100 hikes because what I've learned is when you go on a hike with successful achievers that have great stories, they share. And while they're too concerned about tripping and falling and stumbling, they're not fabricating the story. You're getting the real, the raw, the authentic. And that is a connection that you can build with an audience that's truly wanting to be inspired. That keeps me inspired. And I figured 100 is a good number. And when I get to 100, I could potentially write a book about 100 hikes with inspirational achievers. And what I found is everyone is a human. Everyone has fear, uncertainty, and doubt, the FUD factor. Everyone is vulnerable or fearing embarrassment. And everyone, I don't care if it's a Fortune 500 CEO or a startup entrepreneur with a vision, everyone has the same issues and concerns. Everyone gets depressed. Everyone is happy. That got me to realize that we're all individually unique and the same at the same time. And these are important stories and lessons to hear to keep our audience on the trail of inspiration. You need to write the book. 100% need to write the book. So I'm going to hold you to it. 38 in, which hike had the most impact on you thus far? Okay. So this is going to sound bad, but all of them, every one of them, I have gained some sort of spark because there's something about being in nature where you just feel very connected to your surrounds. All of your senses are firing. There hasn't been a single guest where I just said, man, this guy's a dud. I don't like this person. So I've formed good relationships and bonds, but there are some hikes that are better than others. Season three, which we just released, episode two was with Nat Berman. We hiked just a beautiful trail in New York called Reeves Brook, Reeves Brook Trail, Reeves Brook Loop, depending on where you look it up. Just the scenery and the accomplishment of the ascent, it's very invigorating. Evan Marks in season one, he's just this larger than life character. He's hiking with no cartilage in his knees, a bum shoulder. He doesn't tell me till we're 20 minutes in, but he's not complaining and he's super tough. I've had others where I've just discovered conversation about their early childhood issues or traumas that have really just stopped me in my tracks. One person told us about his molestation as a child and it was the first time he's ever said it out loud. And I always end each episode it doesn't make the cut, but I always ask the guests if there's anything they said that they wish does not make the recording. And this one individual said, no, people need to know my story. And I'm happy I said it. So that to me was a really pivotal moment for just the relationship between me and the individual, but the individual and the world. One of the episodes, a performance coach who I've respected has had a successful career. He turned to me, he asked, what's the most shocking thing a guest has ever told you? And I told him a few items and he goes, well, I'm addicted to substances. I'm thinking, okay, so alcohol, maybe some mild drugs and through some questioning, it turns out it's meth and I'm shocked. So it's amazing what nature can do. Well, let me change that. What nature and a microphone can do. 
Speaking of nature and a microphone, I'm just thinking about setup for a moment. So you guys are going on these elaborate hikes. These are deep conversations. You're recording everything. What is the setup like? Like you're not carrying the camera, are you? Do you have somebody that's following you? How does this work? So initially, uh, there was very little video. It was me on an iPhone. You know, I do all the recording. I wear a, uh, a Zoom H5 on, on my shoulder with the mics and, and a wireless receiver. I have lavalier microphones. Originally, I wanted to be an audio engineer when I was growing up. That was my dream. If I wasn't going to be a rock and roll drummer, I was going to be a sound and audio engineer. So I, I knew a few things from that. I pivoted into a different career, obviously, but I still retained some of that knowledge. So when I was researching what gear to get, I found the right gear. I'm a big believer, if you truly have a passion for something, buy the best equipment that you can afford. Because if you have a passion for what you're doing, you're going to upgrade it anyway. And the baby step was a waste of money. So at this point, now we do have two individuals that video us along the trail. Uh, we might not be videoing the entire hike because honestly, who wants to watch a YouTube of two people hiking for three hours, right? That's kind of boring in my opinion, but we do get some great footage, great clips, great drone shots out of it as well. Do you do this, Darren, because it satisfies you personally? Or do you have a bigger purpose with this? Do you hope to monetize this at some point into your next big business? Like, What is the end goal here? The answer is, oh, hell yeah, hmm. for all of it. So everything I've ever done in my life has been with passion, purpose, and really because I like it and it makes me happy. When I started my telecommunications company, I had left a great position. I was making a lot of money and everyone thought I was nuts. But I was doing it because I wanted to be my own manager, not my own boss, my own manager. I wanted to do things because I believed I can do them. And that brought me happiness. It was never about money. Doing a podcast, as you know, is very expensive. It takes a lot of time, which is a cost, it takes a lot of investment with very little to no return. My goal is, is not to turn this into a, a big revenue stream because I don't think that will happen. My goal is to continue doing this because I'm inspired. I have access to individuals that I didn't think I would have access to before. It is just making me happy every day. And most importantly, it's making others happy, which makes me happy as well, right? It's very selfish if you think about it. And I think being selfish gets a bad rap. Everyone should be selfish. I don't care who you are. You should care about yourself first. And it's the reason why on an airline, they tell you to put your mask on before someone else's. Because if you take care of yourself and you're mentally positive and you're more often than not happy, glasses half full, you can take care of other people and support them even better. And that's kind of how I look at this. Now, as a consummate entrepreneur, someone who loves the machinations of business, Yes, I do see a business opportunity in this. How did you initially pivot into entrepreneurship going back prior to Mass Communications, which is this company you founded and subsequently sold 10 years later? But what's the origin story here? My grandfather turned to me one day when I said, Poppy, why are you happy all the time? Poppy turned to me and he goes, because I quit my fucking job because I couldn't stand working for fucking morons. And that stood with me. So at nine years old, I had seen an opportunity where my parents, we weren't affluent in any way, shape or form. We were middle 
class at best living on Long Island. And, you know, the one thing my parents both worked and they didn't have time to truly clean a house or keep a house. So we had cleaning people that would come every two weeks or so. And I saw an opportunity that maybe I can start a little company and go around the block with my printed flyers and get them gigs and basically invoice and collect for it. So I made these signs energized by Poppy's words and I pasted them around on telephone poles, you know, the old school way of doing things. I didn't get any calls. So that failed. So I learned how to fail quickly. Then, you know, later on, lots of other jobs that I've worked. Uh, my first real job was at, the, I think it was 11 or 12 years old. A pizzeria owner had hired me. He hired me because I was patient and I asked if I could work there. He looked at my father. My father gave him the wink, like, yeah, take this kid off my hands. And then they basically had me answer phones. In college, started a business with some friends. It was in IT services. That failed because I was in college. And if you're not all in, then you're pretty much all out. So lots of little entrepreneurial sparks. But then what really happened was I got a job as an intern. I enjoyed the hell out of it. I stayed there. I almost stayed there too long. And one day I woke up and I had my spark, created mass communications, and then we sold it 10 years to the very day that I started it. And there's all kinds of milestones along the way. 30 million in top line revenue is one milestone. You get to 1,000 plus clients, which is another milestone. You're highlighted by Inc. Magazine, recognized by Cranes, et cetera, et cetera. You sell to Windstream and then post exit, you say you go into this period of depression, darkness that you've written about. How did that happen? And are you somebody that has experienced depression before this? Was this something new for you? What was going on? Yeah, I think with many, I, I don't want to be black and white and say all, right? But, but with many hyperachievers, there is some sadness in there. What got me the epiphany spark to start mass communications was a severe depression of this can't be it. This can't be why I went to school for 18 years and have an engineering degree to come, you know, go to work, type up some reports, answer a phone, hit more keys, and then go home and repeat it. This sucks. Life sucks. So he's depressed. So it's really just something I've always battled with. You know, after the exit, I lost who I was. My identity for 10 years was, you know, Daramas, the CEO. And it's hard to get out from that. But that's the right formula for me or for someone who's a hyperachiever is you start telling yourself, can't, can't, can't. I can't do something. I can't get out of this. I don't want to wake up anymore. And it takes that one event that just brings you back to this hyperachiever will moment. And for me, it was the hike. And that sparked the digging out of the hole. Since then, I haven't had a depressed day because now I do have a renewed sense of purpose. You know, I'm 43 years old. What got me is I felt like I peaked early. I felt like after I sold the company, that's it. My career's over. What am I going to do? And then COVID made it so I didn't have anything to do. It was great being around my family, but there was too much family time. Even my wife said, you got to get a job. You know, so that was all a wake up call. I think, clarify this point if I'm wrong, but you stay on post-acquisition for about a year? There was no requirement for me to stay on, unlike many other exits. I wanted to. You know, at that time I was 38. I wasn't ready to be done. And I also knew that, you know, most acquisitions, you know, they're going to tear your baby apart. And I didn't want that. 
It was also a requirement for me to keep 100% of my employees employed. We were close. We kept 96%. And those that couldn't stay, we, my partners and I, we found them and connected them with other jobs and opportunities. So I, I held, upheld my promise of everyone stays employed when we finally sell the business. But I wanted to make sure that they didn't, you know, those that stayed had a soft landing, fit in with the culture, stayed on. My promise to Windstream was I will stay on for a year. As long as I'm happy and this is exciting and we are successful together, I'll give you another year and I'll keep doing a year at a time. But fast forward eight months in, there was a bankruptcy that Windstream was forced into because of a lawsuit, a huge lawsuit that predated my acquisition. And it's not fun and exciting to work for a bankrupt company. The morale is just sucker punched right out of you. And quite frankly, I'm sure somebody would have turned to me and said, yeah, we need to downsize you. So I beat them to the punch. Why was it important for you to retain all those employees? I made a promise. In the telecom world, the company that I worked for promised everyone they will become wealthy when the company goes public because everyone will have options. You have options. You will become wealthy when? Well, we know that's not true. And no one went wealthy except for the big executives. And that's fine. It's deserving. Now, the employees that I had brought on to mass communications, they were from that world. They knew that. So I would joke about that during our weekly meetings. I promise you won't become wealthy when we sell this company one day. But what I do promise is we as a company will help you with training. You will grow both professionally and personally. Your careers will grow within the company. Your salaries and your take home and your compensation will also increase year over year, provided the company is performing, right? And I also promise when we do sell the company, you will all be employed. So what we did get down to negotiating our terms and our deals for the exit, we had two companies that wanted to acquire us. One would have paid us roughly $8 million more, but they would not guarantee the retention of our employees. And Windstream was less, but guaranteed the retention of 96% of my employees. We had to let go of six. It was important to keep my promise. And you say that there was some sort of correlation or tie-in with Salesforce at the time that for whatever reason, they were perhaps indirectly responsible for this merger happening or this acquisition happening? Is that true? No. So I had a post. I actually reposted it today. Uh, it was about a year ago that I posted it. Uh, the headline, I'm very big on LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. To me, LinkedIn is the net that you have to cast. It is your personal brand. It is the new way of networking and cold calling. And it is the best tool on the planet professionally. And if you're not on it, get on it and use it the right way. So about a year or so ago, I had posted something along the lines of Salesforce helped me sell my company for an additional million dollars. So that's the hook. Salesforce had nothing to do with selling my company, but we had made the decision a year prior to our acquisition. We were not planning on, on selling. We needed a new CRM that was robust, that could scale with us. And my CIO, who is the typical CIO when it comes to technology, not into Apple, into you know PCs and pretty uh, standard Microsoft stuff, he had heavily recommended Salesforce. Now, I thought it was too robust. I didn't think it was pretty enough for what I was used to. I like visuals more than, than textual. And he was very insistent. And 
in conversation, I turned to him. I said, you know what, Dave, you're the one who's going to have to implement this and manage it. So, you know, it's way more expensive than everything else that we were looking at. But if you're really into this, I trust your guidance. I trust your judgment. You're my partner. I'll go with you. But here's the one thing and the one decision that I'm making on it. Chances are if we have Salesforce, whoever we sell our business to will also have Salesforce. And when we sell the business, that'll be one less due diligence issue. Well, fast forward, when we do sell, we're on the pre-sale or pre-agreement call for Windstream to send us an IOI or LOI. And the CIO gets on the call and he doesn't want another acquisition. It's another painful integration for his team. And you can tell, you can hear it in his voice. And he said, listen, we don't really have the bandwidth right now. What CRM do they use? Because I need to know, you know how my team is going to deal with this. And the person on the Windstream side says, well, actually, they use Salesforce. The CIO paused and I heard him say, oh, okay, that's easy then. You got my vote. I'm good. Let me double click on something you said. Using LinkedIn in the right way is so critical. So for people that are building their personal brand or for companies that are going B2B, because that's the place to be, obviously, if you're selling B2B, what do you mean by using LinkedIn the right way? There's two levels of LinkedIn. There's your garden level where you get all of the congratulations for your new job, my new certification. You know, those are the individuals that post every once in a while. It's usually marketing materials or, hey, I was at a trade show and it doesn't really go very far. And then you have the content creator level. That is the penthouse. I'm actually writing a post on this now that's going to go out next week that I'll describe this further. But that's where you get people that actively write content and they're doing it to either share with the world their story, draw attention to what they're doing, build an audience, but that's where you get the heaviest engagement. By doing that, by contributing to the platform, by responding to the comments, by actively contributing on other people's posts, you build your audience and it grows from there. And in that level, you get the most opportunity. A real life example in December, the four weeks of December, I don't have any call to actions in my LinkedIn posts. I post six days a week about entrepreneurship, the emotions of life or selling a business or just being a human. I post about the hikes. I post about business inspiration and topics that can guide entrepreneurs and solo entrepreneurs. I don't ask you to buy anything. I don't ask you to read anything. I don't ask you to do anything other than if you like what you see, follow. And I don't even ask that. I just assume you will, right? But in those four weeks of December, I attracted four new clients. They all reached out to me. And that's the net that I've cast. Now, did I start posting for a reason to grow my consulting, my business therapy practice? No, not really. I started posting because someone told me I should journal. And I thought journaling was boring, so I didn't do it. But then I started doing it on LinkedIn and it felt really good. So just by doing that, I've created content and people do align with real, true content. One of my posts last week, I started the hook saying, I suffer from, and there was anxiety, depression, hot emotions, yelling at first when my kids annoy me, things like that. And then I go into all the positives that I've learned. And that got commented up like crazy because people align with that. Just to expand on this one. You're right. You've written this list. I suffer from anxiety, depression, hot emotions, being obsessive, working too hard, dot, 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 dot. 
et cetera, et cetera. All of these quote unquote sort of negatives or perceived negatives. Just the first two, I think, are some of the most powerful words that are tossed around in the zeitgeist, certainly in the zeitgeist of entrepreneurship. As someone that has experienced anxiety as depression's ugly first cousin, let me tell you that it manifests in different ways for me. For you, how does it manifest? Physically, more than anything. And then it leads to confusion. I once had someone telling me that I was think-fucking something to death. And I laughed at that, but I understand what it means, right? It's analysis paralysis. And that happens when I do get anxiety or anxious is, you know, I get the shakes a little bit. I get a very hyper. That's also related to my ADHD. And then I completely lose focus and get flustered. So that's where I've taught myself by doing research, several breathing techniques that work, that get me grounded again. I've also learned when I'm heightened, stop, pause, walk away. When you enter into a situation with heightened emotions, you lose your point of view 100% of the time, especially when it comes to business. Once you start yelling, feeling anxious, feeling in a heightened emotional state, your argument is lost. If you yell at someone, all they hear is loud sound. They're not paying attention to your words. They're trying to avoid the conflict. Do you think that there is an element of oversharing that's happening right now in 23-24. I ask you this because there's a lot of content creators that are encouraging people to be more vulnerable, to put themselves out there. But I wonder about the other side of this coin. You know, is there an element of sharing? It's like the emperor with no clothes. You're just basically, once you post that, it's almost like you can't take it back. Like it's out there on the internet. Has there been a downside for you? Because you do share a lot. Yeah, I'm guilty of this. I, I, I am an open book. I tell people to be vulnerable as well. You know, there's a lot of naked emperors out there, right? And a lot of people doing this. For me, it's no different than who I've been my whole life. I've always been an open book. I've always led with honesty. I don't like to remember lies. You know, my brain doesn't function that way. I read this great book a long time ago, and I've, I recommend it to my clients, recommend it to anybody phenomenal called Getting Naked by Patrick Lencioni. And it's a business fable about removing the three biggest things, the three biggest fears that hold us back from being successful. The fear of failure, the fear of embarrassment, and the fear of being vulnerable. And it serves as a guide to help you through how to be a better person as well as a business-minded person. I have lived by that. When I read that book, it's like reading a fortune cookie. Oh, yeah. That's true, right? Or a horoscope. That's me. So I don't fear putting it out there because I'm human. And a lot of people are also saying the same thing. Yes, when you put something out on the internet, it lives forever. Although these days, you know, the hot story gets buried with the next hot story anyway, right? But it is discoverable. Is it bad to be human? You know, the old way of thinking about success right? Is the strong male figure, feared nothing, cried never, had no emotions. And if you showed emotions, you were a wuss. Those days are done. I've had some posts where I got ripped apart by a subreddit. Kind of made me laugh. Some of their jokes were funny. I've used some of their jokes myself. You have to have thick skin if you're going to be vulnerable. I saw that actually. You said you were berated by 750 people on Reddit? Yeah. Yeah, I was. It was funny. What happened? I had written a post 
where it started off with the hook. You always want an engaging hook, right? Who are you writing for? You want to get their eyes. Post started off, I cheated on my life. My other life was this, my other life was that. And I was making a reference to, I was always working. I wasn't paying attention to my wife and then eventually kids. It was work, 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 right? My wife is extremely intelligent, right? She's smarter than me. I tell her this all the time. She probably won't even listen to this. Maybe she's listening to me now, but she is very smart. So I've used her as my editor sometimes. And I read that post to her and she goes, you know, be a better hook. Put, I cheated on my wife. Did that. And then that landed me on LinkedIn lunatics. And when I'm reading these 750 comments, they're totally right. It was a cringe post. It did not convey the message I wanted it to. Sorry, what is LinkedIn lunatics? It's a subreddit for people that write these cringeworthy posts. And, you know, I happened to be on there. I saw me go up there and I was like, oh, I guess I made it because I got attention. Yay. But it was cringeworthy. So I did edit the post. Now, I strongly believe when you put something out there, you can't take it back. You can comment it up. You can talk about it. Okay. Like if I said something wrong to you, the words are still out there but my next words can amend that. So what I did with this post, I broke my rule. I put an asterisk in the notes. I said, I am editing this post to its intended purpose because it came across wrong and not my desire. I then edited the post. I removed wife, put life in there, but every edit I made, I put an asterisk next to it to let the reader know that even though I went against what I believe in, I believe more in not offending others based on something I said. How did that experience affect you personally, if at all? Oh, it, it absolutely did. Um, no one likes to get made fun of, right? I do have thick skin. I'm also a human being. It got to me, some of them, but I shared it with my family. We all laughed together and it was at my expense and I got through it. And now I've written another post about it, which you've just read, and I'm fine. I am fine. If you're going to put content out there and you're willing to be open and vulnerable and you're willing to push hard to want to grow your community or your audience, then there's going to be an equal amount of people that don't agree and don't like you. And that's fact. You have to be willing to take it. Yeah. I think that's hard for a lot of people. You know, you mentioned fear, uncertainty, and doubt, the FUD acronym at the beginning of the episode. But I think a lot of entrepreneurs, just a lot of content creators in general have this fear of being laughed at. If I was to just distill it down to one thing, for me, like I can directly relate to that. I have a fear of being laughed at, of being embarrassed in front of a large group of people. This is by and large why I have had an incredibly hard time getting on stage and doing a keynote. Now, I accomplished that last year, but that was a big deal for me. As someone with like crippling stage fright, let me tell you, somebody that would experience severe panic attacks on stage five, six, seven years ago, it was a big deal for me to deliver a long-form keynote and to do it successfully. But what am I scared of? What's the actual fear? It's the fear of being laughed at, at being embarrassed. You're human. Whenever I've spoken keynote or in front of an audience, I get nervous too. And those nerves are anxious and shaky. But then you get on stage and you just go into autopilot because you are the master of your subject. And what has helped me is to put myself on purpose in embarrassing situations. 
I will talk to anybody. I will make bad jokes, good jokes, dad jokes. It doesn't matter. I will say silly things just to try to embarrass myself to the point where now I don't really get embarrassed. I don't think that's a superpower. It's just I practiced it. Now, one thing that is important to realize what embarrassment is. If you trip and fall, that's embarrassing, right? The witnesses of your trip and fall are either going to support you or they're going to nervously laugh. And that nervous laughter, if they're not supporting you, is really them putting themselves in your situation, hoping it wasn't them. Very selfish. The reality, embarrassment didn't matter at all. Everyone gets embarrassed. Today's workforce. This caught my eye. So you say, nowadays people go into the world not expecting to work hard, impress their boss, progress in their career. The motivations in the workforce have shifted. So my question for you is, in what ways have motivations changed? Well, this seems to be a common theme with my clients. Now, I don't have many employees. I don't have any employees anymore. So I don't go into an office environment. I don't witness it for myself. But I hear this from the majority of my clients, that they're new hires, the younger generation. Even though they know that the day starts at 8.30 a.m. and ends at 4 or 5 or whenever it ends, even though it's in the employee handbook and the, the conversations have been had, on expectations. They are seeing in an overwhelming amount of new hires, the rules don't seem to apply. They clock in when they want, or they seem to say, oh, I wasn't aware that the day started at 8.30. And then they're losing those new hires because those new hires either have options or don't want to work harder to impress their managers or the business owner. It's this overall vibe that's been going on. And I hate it. I hate the fact that it seems like a back in my day post, but it was. I don't know that world very well. I was always a roll up my sleeve, you know, boss, give me more work. Boss, give me more work. Put me out there, coach. Right? That's the world that I know. And that's what differentiates successful people. They want to climb the career ladder and eventually make a major pivot. We're not seeing that with the new work world. Now, that is an overgeneralization. And I know that. So it's more of a message to the managers and the hiring manager and the business owner on how to interview and hire better. So I actually agree with you on this point, but I'm going to take the other side of the argument because I've spent a lot of time around millennials and Gen Zers. Like you, I'm a Gen Xer. So I'm in your camp. But a millennial or Gen Z would say, Darren, this is not how things are anymore. Your mentality as it relates to work and career and the corporate world and progression and all these things is completely outdated. I'm going to put myself first before anybody else. I'm going to stay true to my values and I'm not going to compromise for my boss. And my time, my health, my mental health, the culture at work, the mission of the company, these things supersede any of the other stuff that you're saying. How would you respond? So I would say you're absolutely right. Your mental health comes first. I will always appreciate mental health. I will give you a break and a vacation whenever you are ready for that. Absolutely. But if you want to work here, we are in the service industry. We go where our customers go. 
So at 8.30 a.m., if your phone is ringing and you are not there and I am hiring you and paying you to do that job, the expectation is you show up. And if you have a mental health issue, we can talk about it. But if you don't see the ability for you to consistently come in at 8.30 a.m., then you can't work here. I'm hiring you in exchange for you getting benefits, compensation from me. It's a two-way street and it's a conversation. But what is not part of the conversation is when I need you to do your job. Let me ask you about something else that you said earlier, which is somewhat related to what we're talking about right now. So you said, and I think it's compelling, you say, if you're not all in, you're out, essentially. A Gen Zer, millennial, would say, look, I actually can't afford to be all in on this new thing because I'm not independently wealthy. So I do want to become a founder, an entrepreneur. I do have this idea, but I need to pay my bills. So I'm going to start a side hustle and I'm going to work on my side hustle evenings and weekends, let's say, to the tune of like 15 hours a week. I can't be all in. What do you say? All right. So I have a double answer for this one. And so as a business owner, I'm not okay with your side hustle. If I'm paying you for 40 hours, you're here for 40 hours. If your side hustle is on the weekend, great. If your side hustle is in competition of what you are doing during your 40 hours, not okay with that. If your side hustle is stealing or leveraging an intellectual property from our company, not okay with that. If you are an engineer and your side hustle is making um, hair braids, I'm totally okay with that. As an example, it's a different thing. But if you're sitting here leveraging our training and our time that you're being paid for and you're doing your side hustle while I am paying you or the company is paying you, then you are stealing from the company. As a human that inspires those with a vision and a dream, I often say, if you are sitting at your desk staring at glass trophies of award, wondering why your life went wrong, but you have a vision, start using your current situation as a training ground and then start getting going. I am that person. I gave six months notice to my employer. I was in an upper management position. I knew that it would be hard to fill my shoes. I had to transition everything away. And there was a really great working environment for me. Those six months, I spent some time getting my company ready. I was using my current situation as the training ground to launch. You can say that was my side hustle. Now, the one thing I didn't do though, is I didn't spend work hours building my other business. My brain was building my other business, but when it came down to time doing the actual work and the machinations and everything I needed to do, that's when I went home. I spent the extra hours there, sleepless nights, right? I starved. That's what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur and business owner in a startup if this is your first time doing it. I ate Hot Pockets for three years as dinner, one lean pocket every single night because food was just to stay alive. The purpose was to grow and I knew this was only temporary. You have to be willing to starve and it has to be on your time. So there's a little bit of a uh, cross in that but take it for what it is. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to hit on or share with the audience? The message is be inspired, be positive. Negativity is head trash and it's a choice. It is easier to be negative, but the news, the media, they want you to be negative so you come back. 
Start focusing on positivity. The world does need that change. The more good, the more karma, whatever you want to call it, the more positive you are, the more opportunities find their way to you. I took a hike podcast for those that don't know about the pod. Get that podcast wherever you get your audio. Where else, Darren, can people link up with you or follow you on social? Just look for me on LinkedIn. It's Darren Mass, M-A-S-S. You'll find me there. I took a hike podcast on Instagram. I took a hike on TikTok, Google. That usually works. We got to do it next time I'm in New York. Absolutely. Yeah, I I would love to have you on the show. You will find it to be fun and exciting, and I promise it will be safe. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Entrepreneurs Exposed is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at scriberbase.com. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. It helps our audience find us. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash E2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Hi, I'm Lessa Gaudet, host of Her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Electric acid.